Suppose I could offer you today some sort of lessons with a famous person. Okay, I'll pick a celebrity and I'll call uh, his or her name out to you. And you call back to me, if you had the opportunity, what would you like this individual to teach you? Okay, what would you like this famous person to teach you? Okay, Serena Williams. Tennis, right. I mean, she's big in the news right now. She is a killer tennis player. I'd like her to help me with my serve. All right, let's, let, let's try another one. Dave Ramsey. Finances, okay? If you've heard his radio talk show or you've gone to Financial Peace University, wouldn't it be great to have Dave personally tutor you in money management, saving, investing, budgeting, whatever? Uh, here's another one. John Mayer. Yeah, something having to do with music. I mean, the dude's a good songwriter, but... Man, his guitar playing, he's sick. I'd love to learn how to play guitar from John Mayer. How about Rachel Ray? Something to do with food, absolutely. Okay, one last one. Jesus Christ. Any number of things, right? So isn't it interesting with these other celebrities, like there's one thing that comes to your mind immediately when you say Jesus and you could get personal lessons from him, I'd say, like, can you teach me how to walk on water? <laughs> yeah, there's a little barefoot water skin going on here. Or could you teach me how to love my enemies like you did? Or could you teach me how to cast out demons? That would be cool. Or how to start a movement with 12 knuckleheads? You know, that would that'd be really, you know, I'd love to learn leadership at the feet of Jesus. But do you know that in the four gospel accounts, the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there was only one occasion, only one occasion when Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, asked him to teach them to do something. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Why don't you read it with me, okay? All of our four campuses, let's read this out loud together. Here we go. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. What is the one and only thing that Jesus' disciples ever asked him to teach them to do? Call it out. Pray. pray. To pray. You know, evidently, when Jesus finished praying on this occasion, there was something so winsome, so compelling, so powerful about the way he prayed. The disciples who'd been observing this said, hey, can you teach us how to do that? In fact, truth is, if you look at uh, Luke 11, verse 1, they didn't ask. It was a demand. Bible scholars say it's in the imperatival mood. It's a command. Lord, teach us to pray. It's in the verb tense is aorist, which means it's said forcefully. It's, there's a sense of urgency to it. Lord, you just got to teach us to do this like right now. So welcome to week one of a five-week series called Teach Us to Pray. Five essential lessons from Jesus. We're going to be learning how to engage in disciplined prayer, how to engage in balanced prayer, corporate prayer, intercessory prayer, persevering prayer, and our teacher for each of these lessons is going to be Jesus Christ. Now, today's lesson is disciplined prayer. The word discipline simply means that we're going to learn how to make prayer a regular habit in our daily lives because prayer shouldn't be a hit or miss thing. 
Prayer shouldn't be strictly the one-liners that we throw up at God throughout the course of a day whenever we find ourselves in trouble. Now, I know that when I say the word discipline, some of you have an adverse reaction to that because when you hear discipline, you think drudgery. When you hear discipline, you think mindless routines. When you think Uh, When you hear discipline, you you think of having to make yourself do something that you don't really want to do. You know, praying, it's like eating your vegetables or mowing the lawn or doing your homework, right? But let me remind you that the word discipline comes from the same root as the word disciple. And so if you're determined to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you consider yourself to be a committed Christ follower, then there's got to be some measure of discipline in your life. Now, now let me tell you right up front, I don't think our problem really is with discipline. I think the root cause of our problem is the motivation behind our discipline. I think if you try to do anything in a disciplined fashion for the wrong motivation, you will soon give up. It won't be much fun. Let me use disciplined prayer as an example. If you determine to become a prayer out of a sense of duty, I'm a Christ follower and Christ followers are supposed to pray, or I just joined a community group and we pledged to pray for each other during the week, and so I ought to do... If you do it for that reason, you're going to hate it. If you do it out out of a sense of guilt... Oh, I feel so bad when I go three days and I haven't talked with God. If you do it out of a sense of fear, got to pray before I go to work, before I go, go to school, or something awful could happen to me today, you're not going to be encouraged to develop this life of disciplined prayer. You can't do it for the wrong motivations. So you say, well, what are the right motivations? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15? Okay, John chapter 15. What we're going to do today is look at three positive motivations for disciplined prayer. Three motivations for disciplined prayer. If you haven't taken your outline out yet, I would encourage you to jot down some notes today as we go along, not only because it will help you focus on what's being said, but it'll help you remember and apply to your life what God's speaking to you. John chapter 15, the first motivation is this. I'll simply call it the relationship motivation. The relationship motivation. Now, as I read the opening paragraph of John 15 to you, I'm going to ask you to do what I often encourage you to do as you're reading Scripture, and that is look for repeating words or repeating ideas, repeating phrases, because whenever God says something more than once in the same passage, you know that's what he's trying to get your attention about, okay? So as I read this, you you look for repetition. I am the true vine. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Repeating words. What did you see? Call it out. Okay, fruit. Yeah, the word fruit pops up a number of times. What else? Branches, vine. Jesus is working a metaphor here. What else? 
remain. Remain. Jesus says, if, if, if I remain in you and, and you remain in me, you're going to be a fruitful person. Now, what does this word remain mean? Well, if you look at other English versions of the New Testament, they translate it as make a home with or stay joined to or be united with. See, Jesus is talking about an intimate relationship that should exist between him and us. Now, prayer, which is going to pop up a little further down the passage in John 15, prayer is one of the key ways that this intimate relationship is enhanced. If we're praying on a regular basis, not just quickie prayers, but setting aside time in our daily schedule, carving out a chunk of time in which to pray, we're going to grow closer and closer and closer with Jesus. And if we don't do this, our relationship with Christ is just not going to grow. That's why I say that the, uh, the first reason to pray, the first motivation is the relationship with Jesus that will grow out of it. Now, friends, I know this sounds pretty basic, but I also know that many of us, myself included, often approach prayer with what I'll call a transactional rather than a relational view. By transactional, I mean we're in it for the transaction. We give God something he wants, namely prayer, and in return we get from God something we want, the answer to that prayer. So there's a, a big transaction that, that, that's taking place. We begin to view God as a cosmic vending machine. You know, when, when we're faced with a, a problem or whatever, we put in our coins, we, we pray, and then we pull the lever and we watch to see if our candy bar comes out. And, and that candy bar can be, uh, you know, depending on what we're praying for, it can be a date to this year's homecoming dance. It could be a, a new job because we're currently out of work. It could be something more serious. It could be healing from cancer. It could be the return of a wayward child. It could be understanding algebra. You know, whatever we've slipped the coin of prayer in, we pull the lever, we hope the candy bar comes out. Jesus says, wrong view of prayer. It's not about a transaction, it's about a relationship. John 15, if you remain in me and I remain in you, that's, you know, that's what we're to be aiming at. This whole metaphor, this Branches in the grapevine metaphor suggests connection, intimacy. By, by the way, Jesus didn't make this metaphor up. This was a very popular Old Testament metaphor. The grapevine in the Old Testament or the vineyard in the Old Testament is ancient Israel, God's people. God said on, on numerous occasions, my, my, my people, they're a vineyard and I planted them and I expected fruit from their lives. But instead of fruit, all I've gotten is thorns and thistles. God's Old Testament people wandered away from him. They, they didn't cooperate with God's plan. And so they only produced garbage. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7 is one of those passages that describes this. Jesus wants to change all that. Jesus wants to create a people who stay intimately connected with God, who draw their spiritual nourishment from him, whose lives produce rich fruit. Jesus is all about relationship, and this is, is what he wants to drive us to prayer. 
The, the reason we're to carve out a chunk of time every day to engage in prayer is not to get more from God, but to get more of God. You see the difference? Big difference. The reason we pray is not to get more from God, it's to get more of God. It's not for the sake of the transaction, it's for the sake of the relationship. And, and so if, you know, if prayer feels somewhat boring to you, maybe, maybe you're not in it for the relationship yet. And just imagine how horribly insulting this must be to Jesus. Picture, if you would, a couple there going to marriage counseling. Okay, they, their marriage is, their relationship's not great. They want some help. And so after their first session, the counselor hears them out and he looks at them and he says, you know what you guys need? You need, you need some communication. And you probably heard it said that communication is the key to a good marriage. Well, it is. And so here's your homework assignment. Before we get together next week, your job is every day for uh, 20 to 30 minutes, you're to sit down with each other and talk. I don't even care what you talk about. You're just to sit down, look each other in the eye, and to talk with each other for 20 to 30 minutes every day before we get together next session. Now, now again, picture this. The husband looks incredulously at the counselor, and he says, are you kidding me? 20 to 30 minutes, like a day? He said, like, can we shove it all into one day, like do a Friday night date and then not have to do it during you know, the week. I mean, it's not like we're not talking to each other. Every day I tell her what I want for breakfast. I ask her to pick up my shirts at the cleaner. I remind her our kids have a soccer game. Wouldn't you love to, to reach out and smack that imaginary husband? Isn't this the way we often approach prayer? See, I pray. I talk to God. I tell him what I want. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that prayer has nothing to do with making requests. The Bible encourages us to make our requests to God. But, but I want to underscore the fact that Jesus says primarily prayer is about relationship. Primarily prayer is about remaining in him and having him remain in us. The relationship motivation. Secondly, why do we pray? There's the desperation motivation. Go back to the text. Let's pick it up where we left off. Verse 5. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Look closely at that last line of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In the original Greek text of this verse, it's stated even more strongly. Jesus uses a double negative, something that we don't do in English. What Jesus literally says here in the original text is, apart from me, not you can do nothing. Not you can do nothing. Now, I'm not sure if we believe what Jesus says here. At least we don't pray as if we believe what Jesus says. See, we, we pray on the basis of the fact that, that we believe there are some things we can do without his help. 
And so we don't pray about those things. But there are other things that seem a bit beyond us, and because they're beyond us, we, we go to Christ with those in prayer. It's like we create these imaginary lists and there's a line somewhere in the middle of the list and everything above the line, those are the things we can do on our own and everything below the line is a little more difficult and so we pray about those things, right? See, so you get a cold, got a cold this week. You know, what do you do? You go to the drugstore and you get some decongestant. But if the doctor tells you you've got heart disease, you say, ooh, we, we better pray about that. So there's a line there. So you're working on your homework and you, you don't get your science homework. So what do you do? You pick up your cell and you dial a friend and you say, hey, do you understand this stuff? However, if you're sitting in the final exam for that science class and the test drops onto your desk, you immediately begin to pray. Isn't that what they say? As long as there are, are tests in school, there will always be prayer in school. Yeah. yeah. You're having arguments with your spouse these days, so what, what do you do? Well, you're constantly thinking of the next thing you're going to say. If she says that again, I'm going to come back with it. But if your spouse approaches you with papers from a divorce lawyer, now you say, oh, we better pray about this marriage. You see how that, that works? If it's above the line, we can handle it ourselves. If it falls below the line, ooh, better pray. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do, say it, church, nothing. Not sure I heard you decalb people. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We, we got to stop treating prayer as a last resort. How often have you heard people say, well, there's nothing else we can do, so I suppose we should just pray. What, what, what kind of a perspective is that? Again, it assumes that we'll, we'll begin, we'll do everything we can, and then when we've run out of options, then we'll, we'll pray. We, we far overrate our own capacity to take on any challenge, friends. We've got to wake up to our desperation that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You know, we got to gain the perspective of the little, the, the little mouse. I use this analogy a lot because I, I love the story. The little mouse who's walking across the jungle bridge with his buddy, the elephant, and there's a deep ravine below, and so the bridge is swinging wildly from side to side, and they get across the ravine, and the, the mouse turns to the elephant and says, didn't we give that bridge a ride? In this analogy, we are the little mouse we think we really have the, the capabilities to take on our challenges, not recognizing that the elephant, which is Christ, meaning no irreverence to him, he's the one who really swings the bridge. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus himself in his humanity models this dependence upon the heavenly father for us. Jesus was constantly telling his disciples you know, I, I don't do anything on my own. I mean, this is the second person of the Trinity speaking, but in, in his humanity, 
He says, everything I say, everything I do, it's all got to come from the Father, which is why Jesus was constantly retreating to places of prayer by himself or with his followers. You know, you read the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, he's always praying. Isn't that interesting? The Son of God, he's always praying. In fact, they call the gospel of Luke the gospel of prayer because every time you turn around in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is praying about something. His ministry is inaugurated at his baptism. As he comes out of the water, he's praying. He does a miracle, feeds 5,000 people. The miracle's over. He retreats to a mountainside to pray. He's got to choose some select followers who will be leaders of the future movement. Before he makes his selection, he spends an entire night in prayer. He's about to face an arrest and the cross, and so he goes to Gethsemane with his buds, and he, he prays so intensely that he drips drops of blood. Jesus was always, always praying because he realized how desperately dependent he was upon the heavenly Father. Back in June, I spent 10 days with my family in Israel. And at the end of those 10 days, we were sitting around having a cup of coffee in our hotel in Jerusalem. And I asked uh, my family, we had my daughters and uh, they're both married, so their husbands were with us. I said, so what was your favorite place? And ironically, we all chose the same place, a place called Aramis. Uh, Aramis is a Greek word that means solitary, and it's the name given to a cave located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where a Bible archaeologists and historians believe Jesus often retreated to pray. It's one of the only caves in that area, and it was a, a place where Jesus frequently hung out, so you could see the sea from the cave, so they imagine this is where he went to pray. So we, we went to Aramis. Now, the tour buses don't go to Aramis. So they don't know how to get there, but we weren't on a tour. We were with a couple of friends of ours who've been to Israel 20-some times, and so they know, know how to get you to where the tour buses don't go. So you start at the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus preached a sermon, his famous Sermon on the Mount. There's a church that's built there. That's where the tour buses go. But if you walk to the edge of the property, there's a fence, and if you crawl kind of through a hole in the fence... I think there was a no trespassing sign or something, but, you know, you can walk down this long path. In fact, I think we got a picture of me. That's my favorite picture from Israel. That's a dad and his two girls walking down the path. And uh, we walk down that path together, me and Emily and Rachel and the others, and you get to a cliff edge. That's the sea in the distance. And we, uh, that's my son-in-law, Adam. Uh, he's the reason why every time we came to a Palestinian checkpoint, <laughs> yeah, they like double and triple checked our papers and our passport. I said, dude, lose the beard, lose the, the you know, head scarf. So we're looking out over the Sea of Galilee, and then if you kind of uh, edge your way down about 20 yards beyond this point, you come to a cave. This is Aramis, and you could hang out in the cave as Sue, you see Sue and my daughters doing. And, and our friends, our personal tour guides, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend an hour and a half here. Now, we all had our backpacks with Bibles in them, and so we got out our Bibles, and we read some of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. 
and we spent time in prayer. And some of us hung out in the cave and some right above the cave where you saw Adam sitting. And, and I'll tell you what was underscored in our lives in that hour and a half, that if even the Son of God, even if Jesus Christ himself felt it necessary to get alone, to depend upon the Heavenly Father in prayer, how much more do I need to carve out time in my daily schedule to meet with God in prayer? You know, the fact is, friends, some of us, we're just, we're just not desperate enough you know, having written a book on prayer, prayer coach, people are often asking me, so what, what motivates you to prayer? And my answer is always the same, desperation. <laughs> and it's not only the big things. You know, every weekend when I come to preach at Christ Community Church, I tell the programming staff, that we get together beforehand and pray, the people who lead worship and so on. I say, yeah, I'm a desperate man. I hope you're desperate because unless God shows up, nothing's going to happen in people's lives. But I'm desperate in small affairs, too. I overheard my son say to a friend not too long ago, he was explaining to this friend that he'd really learned from his mom and dad how to pray, and I was glad to hear that. And he said, you know, my dad prays about, he, he prays when he loses his keys. And I thought to myself, I do. <laughs> I do. Because I found out over time, if I lose my keys, I could spend an hour infuriatingly looking for those keys, or I can pray and find them in five minutes and with a calm spirit instead of marching around the house yelling, who took my keys? You know, are, are, are we desperate enough to make prayer a part of our daily schedule? You know, let's get real practical here. When... And where in your day could you, you carve out time to pray? Now, again, I'm not talking about quickie prayers. I'm talking about a set time every day. If you've never done this before, start with a chunk of 10 minutes. You know, where could you fit 10 minutes in to pray every day? Because you want a relationship with Christ that grows and because you know that apart from him, you can do nothing. So start with the when. Maybe it's uh, first bit of the day. You know, you get up early and after breakfast you read your Bible and you spend 10 minutes in prayer before running off to work or to school. And so to do this, this week, you're going to have to set your alarm 10 minutes earlier than you usually do to squeeze that in. Or may, maybe you have a private office at work and you could do this in the middle of the day. That's the best when for you. You shut the door and after you eat your bag lunch, you spend 10 minutes in prayer. Or maybe, for you, maybe you're a, a mom of young kids and it's not until the end of the day when they're all to bed and asleep and you have the first quiet moment when you can squeeze out 10 minutes in prayer. When is the best time for you to do it? And, the, and then where will you do it? Will it be in your comfortable chair in the family room where you, you read your Bible and then you, you, you log 10 minutes of prayer? Will it be somewhere outdoors? I, there's a path I love to go. I love to pray outdoors. Is that your best place? Is it, is it going to be in your, in your car on your way to work because you've got a 45-minute commute? Though driving and praying don't always mix, especially if you drive like me. Or, or is, it, is it in your pickup truck in the high school parking lot before classes begin? Where is the best place for you to do this? I'm appealing 
to you here in St. Charles and at Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb, if you don't determine right now, in fact, before you leave the auditorium you're sitting in, when and where you'll carve out time to pray, you probably won't do it. Are you desperate enough to do it? Let me give you a third motivation. The fruitfulness motivation. You know, I wanted to come up with a different word than fruitfulness for my outline here. I had a bunch of synonyms I tried to force into this because we don't use the word fruitfulness. Like, how's your fruitfulness these days? Yeah. You know, but I, I couldn't ignore the fact that Jesus uses the word fruit repeatedly in John 15. He uses it seven times. And I finally concluded, okay, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. So look at the closing verses of today's text, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, and this is the prayer part now, this is what everything's been leading to. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. There's our fruit word. You could circle it in your Bible. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. God wants us to bear much fruit. What does that mean? Well, if you, you trace the word fruit in your Bible with respect to what our lives are to produce, you, you'll find three or four ideas. Uh, sometimes the Bible uses the word fruit to speak of the godly character God wants to produce in us. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is what Paul calls it in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word fruit, it's speaking not of godly character, but of good works that are done in Jesus' name. Paul writes to the Colossians, Colossians 1 verse 10, says, I'm really praying for you guys that you would live lives worthy of God, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So when you use the spiritual gifts in ministry that God's given you, when you serve the poor, when you show up for a second Saturday, that's fruitfulness. Third way that scripture uses fruit is to speak of the people you introduce to Christ. So, you know, we just finished a series on this, right? You got friends, you got family members who don't know Jesus and you point the way to Jesus or you bring them to Christ's community where they hear the good news and begin a relationship with Christ. They're your fruit. Fourth way is how we find it right here in John 15. Fruitfulness means answers to prayer. Jesus says in verse 7, pray, you know, pray about everything and, and God will give you what you ask for. And in the very next verse, he calls this the fruit that brings glory to God. In fact, I would dare say that the fruit of prayer kind of encompasses the other meanings of fruit because we're often praying about those other things. We're praying about godly character. God, make me a more gentle person. And when he does, the, the fruit is not just the gentleness, it's also the answer to the prayer. If you're praying for a lost friend, God, bring James to Christ. And James comes to know Christ. James is not only your fruit, but your fruit is also the answer to the prayer for James' salvation. See how this works? And according to Jesus, God wants us to be fruitful people. In, in fact, there is a fruitfulness progression in this passage you just got to see. 
Okay, if you got your own Bible in front of you, go back to verse 2. By the way, this is a good reason to bring your own Bible. All right, there, there are times when I think, you know, we ought to lose the, the screens and make everybody bring their own Bible and follow along and mark it up. And I know that there are some of you who are still investigating the faith and don't own a Bible yet, or you're new to Christ and you've yet to purchase a Bible, but oh, bring it with you and mark it up as we go. Verse 2. Jesus says that God, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Circle no fruit. That's where it begins. Begins with fruitlessness. Then you go to verse 4. Last phrase of verse 4. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Circle fruit. We've already made a little progression. We've gone from no fruit in verse 2 to fruit in verse 4. Let's take another step forward. Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear, call it out, much fruit. So now we've gone from no fruit to fruit to much fruit, but we're still not finished. Drop down to verse 16. We're not going to get all the way to 16 in our study today. But verse 16, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last in other words, fruit that's of eternal value. See, God wants you to be fruitful. God wants, wants you to go from no fruit to fruit to much fruit to eternal fruit. And the way that that happens is through prayer. God delights in answering our prayers because he delights in us becoming fruitful people. Now, what if I ask you today, so tell me about some answers to prayer in your life recently. Would you be able to reel off five or, or six of those? Would you be able to say, oh man, there was this and there was this and there was this and God has borne so much fruit through my prayer life. Because if you can't say that, maybe it's time you get after prayer so that you could bear much fruit to the glory of God. In fact, Jesus says in verse 8, this is how you show that you're his disciple, by bearing fruit, answers to prayer. An unfruitful Christ follower is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. No such thing. See, Jesus says in this passage, if you're not bearing fruit, I'll tell you why it is, because you're not really connected to the vine. You think you are, but you don't have the relationship with Jesus. You think you do, because if you did, you'd be bearing fruit. But instead, look at verse 6. Instead, he says, you are disconnected, and disconnected branches get picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Fruitfulness is a big deal to Jesus. He wants your life to be fruitful. He wants you praying about stuff and seeing answers. Look again at that promise in verse 7. It's so amazing. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given you. Wow. You say, well, wait a second here. So that means I can ask God to make me uh, the homecoming queen this year? Or I could ask God for a promotion at work. I could ask God for a new sunroom on the back of my house or, you know, that the Bears would win the Super Bowl this year and God's gonna, he's kind of obligated to do this? Well, well, don't forget the first part of the verse, okay? Jesus says, if, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, if you're hanging out with Jesus 
and you're spending time, his word is remaining in you. You're reading the book, you're studying the book, you're discussing it in your community group, you're applying it to your life. Then what kinds of things do you think you're going to pray for? You're not going to pray for a black Hummer, okay? If you're hanging out with Jesus and his word is percolating in you, you're going to ask for things that please God, that honor God, and God's going to say, oh, I was waiting for you to ask for that. I'd just love to give it to you. Now, does this mean that God never says no? No, he says no even to good requests sometimes for reasons known only to him. But friends, let me say to you, so often we get wrapped around the axle of this. The minute we start talking about prayer, people want to say, oh, kind of giving up on that because there's this thing I've been praying about and God's never, he's never responded. And so I just don't, I just don't pray anymore. And I want to say, really? So there's this one thing? Because as I read John 15, what Jesus is is saying, hey, let go of that. There are many things God wants to say yes to if you'll just ask him. James 4, verse 2, James says, you do not have because you do not ask God, period, end of sentence. You don't pray. This fruitfulness motivation ought to drive every one of us to carve out time daily to meet with God and lay it all out before him because he he just is so eager to give us positive responses. You know, sometimes I imagine that I'm going to get to heaven one day and Jesus is going to say to me, Jim, I want to show you something. Come here. And he's going to take me over to this huge warehouse complex It takes up acres and acres, and we're going to walk inside, and there's going to be a section called the Jim Nicodem section. I'm going to walk in, and there's going to be row after row, shelf upon shelf of packages, little packages, big packages, all different shapes and sizes, and they all have my name and address stamped on them. And I'm going to say to Jesus, what's this? And he's going to look at me and and say, this is what I wanted so badly to give you on earth. But you didn't pray. You didn't pray for it. What, what does God want to give you? He's just waiting for you to say, pray. Pray, carve out time. Stop living by the quickie one-liner method. You know, that's wonderful throughout the course of the day if it's built upon, if it's drawing nourishment from a a prayer life that's more uh, virile, that's more alive, that is a chunk of time. So I want to say to you in St. Charles and in Bartlett and in Blackberry Creek and in DeKalb, I want to say to you this week, When and where will you meet with God for prayer? Where will you carve out that 10 minutes of time? Where will it be spent? Don't do it. Don't do it out of a sense of duty. Well, the pastor's preaching a series on prayer, so I ought to do this. Don't don't do it out of guilt. Don't do it out of fear. Do it because you want a deeper relationship with Christ, and when you remain in him and he remains in you, when you hang out with him in prayer, that's how you grow in this relationship. Do it because you're keenly aware of your dependence upon him that apart from him, you can do nothing. Not even the smallest thing is effective when done apart from him. And do it finally because you're convinced that God has so much more in store for you. He's waiting to give you if you'd only pray. 
Let's stand together for closing prayer. Uh, when I say amen, we'll have a prayer team on either side of the rail. And so if you brought a burden you'd like to pray with somebody about, they're here for you. I'll be up front, would be happy to pray with you. Though because of this cold, I'm going to ask you, don't kiss me on the lips, okay? So, yeah. Uh, but if, you know, if you're willing to stand within two feet of me, uh, I'm happy to, uh, to pray for you. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would set loose an army of prayers here today. And I know the prayer you're most wanting to hear from some of us who've never bent a knee to you as Savior and Lord. The first prayer that you want to come out of our lips is, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. And for those who've never prayed that prayer and have wondered why other prayers have seemed to get no higher than the ceiling, I pray that they would be humbled today enough to cast themselves fully upon you and your, your mercy. Receive the forgiveness that was purchased when you died upon the cross for our sins. May, may this be the day when people in this auditorium and at our other campuses confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then, Father, for, for those of us who claim to know you, who claim to be branches attached to the vine, may we truly draw spiritual nourishment from you this week and hang with you in times of prayer. Help us to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.